I invite you to take your Bibles again, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We have been taking a journey through Corinthians. We've had a journey of 40 messages. I hope it wasn't a wilderness experience for you. But today we're coming into the land, I guess, because we are the last chapter now, chapter 16. And in this chapter, Paul um, puts a lot of things together in closing out his epistle to the Corinthians. And that's why I said it's a potpourri types of acknowledgement of, of uh, uh, admonitions, suggestions, advice, and teaching. And that's what we'll be looking at today. So if you have it, I want you to turn, please, to chapter 16. And Paul begins with a very touchy subject in a sense. Many people have difficulties preaching on this particular topic because it has to do with money. And um, that's what Paul deals with here. Notice what he says, how he begins. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Now, regarding your question, this was a question, another question, probably the last one that the Corinthians brought up for Paul to respond to. Regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. When I come, I will write letters of recommendation for the messengers you choose to deliver your gifts to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me to go along, they can travel with me. Now remember, folks, this is the word of God. This is a practical advice or directions on how we are to deal with contributing money to the needs of God's people. Now, this first verse, then, concerns a collection which was to be taken up by the church in Corinth to send to the needy saints in Jerusalem. Now, the reason for that is, number, if you read Acts chapter 11, you'll see there was a famine going on in Jerusalem at the time. Also, remember that the Jewish people were ostracized by their own people because of their faith in Christ. In a sense, they were experiencing what would happen under the Antichrist. They couldn't buy or sell in many places because they were put outside of the society. And so the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were undergoing a very difficult time. And Paul now is trying to raise funds to meet their physical needs. Now, this teaches us an important lesson here from a biblical point of view when it comes to Christians. The Bible teaches that we are to care for one another. He said we should care for all men, but especially those of the household of faith. And that is what Paul is doing here. In fact, in, chapter, in the book of Romans, chapter 15, Paul talks about the Jewish contribution to the gospel. He's, he tells them in Romans that it, if it wasn't for the Jews, we wouldn't have the gospel. And so he says we owe the Jews a lot. And he brings in the principle that we should minister in a material way to those who minister to us in a spiritual way. And Paul is putting that into practice right now. Now, as we go to these verses, though, I want to put in what I call disclaimers. 
what the passage doesn't teach. First of all, this passage does not refer to what we now call Lord's Day tithe and offerings, which we just did. This has nothing to do with the church collection on the daily basis that we call tithes and offerings. These instructions refer specifically to what we would call a special offering. For instance, if we were to take up an offering for the people in Haiti, that's the kind of offering he's taking up here. We call it the Haiti Earthquake Fund. Paul is giving instructions as to how the church should properly handle these special funds. However, in doing so, he gives us also principles that uh, apply to giving in general. Secondly, Paul is establishing a uniform procedure for all churches regarding the handling of church funds. You see that as we go through the passage. This passage has nothing to do with tithes, nothing at all. In fact, Paul never used the word tithe in any discussion he has on giving in the New Testament. And by the way, he gives more instructions on giving than anyone else. But he never mentions anything about tithe. It always has to do with the free will offering of a heart who loves God. All right? Now, it's important for us then to understand that Paul is talking about this special offering. Paul founded many churches in Macedonia, including Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Paul preached in Athens, and he founded a church at Corinth. All of these were primarily Gentile churches. Now he is appealing to the Gentile churches to help to take care of the Jewish churches in Jerusalem. So Paul again is emphasizing a point that in Christ we are all one. God doesn't know anything about race or class or anything else. In Christ we are to care for one another. That's the basic preaching here. Now, let's look at some of these things that he mentions. Has the, what he is instructing the people at Corinth to do regarding this special offering. He says, on the first day of each week. Now, there's a strong implication here then that the first day of the week had now become a set time for the gathering of God's people. In other words, it wasn't the Sabbath, the Saturday they were meeting on. They were meeting on the first day of the week that they call now the Lord's Day. Now, remember, one of the reasons why this was done was because of the significant things that happened on the first day that has to do with Christianity. First of all, Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. The church was started on Pentecost, which fell on that day, on the first day of the week. And these were some of the reasons we believe the church started to meet on the Lord's Day. Please listen carefully now. There's no such thing as a Christian Sabbath day. We have a Sabbath person. Our Sabbath is Jesus Christ. All right? The Sabbath has always been, from a Jewish perspective, Saturday. It has always been Saturday, and it will always be Saturday. But there's no such thing as a Christian Sabbath day. Our rest is in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4 explains this very carefully. All right? And so we rest in him. The work has been done by God, and now we enter into his rest. It becomes our rest. 
He is our Sabbath. It's very important for us to understand that today because there are individuals who teach otherwise and teach that if we worship or we gather on the first day of the week, we got the mark of the beast on us and we're on our way to hell. That's a radical teaching as far as I'm concerned. And we must realize that. All right? So, the first day of the week, it's a special day for the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. We must remember that. Now, it's not a day of rest. If anything at all we want to call it, we could call it a day of worship and service, but not a day of rest. Now, he goes on, he says, in this passage here, you should each, notice now, you should each, he focuses on the individual here. In other words, giving to support God's people is the privilege and responsibility of each believer. No believer is too poor not to help another believer in need. That's the point. Each believer, rich and poor, slave or free, all would have a part in the sacrifice of giving of their possessions to help the people of God. Friends, I say again, if we would be obedient to the word of God as believers in Christ, as members of the incredible body of Christ, there would never be a need that goes unmet within the assembly of God's people. Because I believe that any need we have here, there's another believer or other believers who can meet that need. Like someone says, you know, uh, the big problem is not the money for God's people. The big problem is it's in your pocketbook or in your pockets or in your bank. You don't release it in order for God to use it amongst his people here. So each person, Paul is saying, is to do that. And he's going to explain how that is to be done in a moment. Then he says it is to be done systematically. On the first day of the week, you were to lay something aside. Notice he's storing it up. In other words, it was not, it was not to be haphazard. Or, you know, when you come out to the offering, the offering plate comes in, you're rushing in your pocket. Let me see how much money I get I'm going to give. That's not the way the Bible teaches about giving. When you come, you should come prepared, knowing how much you are to give already. That's what Paul is talking about here. So, um, actually, for believers who gather on the first day of the week, when you come on Lord's Day morning, uh, you give what God has provided for you to give. If you come out Sunday evening, you don't have to dig into your pocket and give a dollar or two dollars just because you be so you could be seen as giving something when the plate comes around, because you should have already done your giving for the week. You understand what I'm saying? It's something that you plan. It's not haphazard or anything else like that. Now, notice he says, put aside a portion of the money you have earned. He didn't say all of it. He didn't say ten percent. He didn't say fifty percent. He didn't say ninety percent. He said a portion. That portion is to be decided between you and the Lord and your needs. I have individuals come to me. I remember a lady, and she was, she was really distraught. She says, Pastor Lee, my rent is due. But if I pay my rent, I would not be able to pay my tithes. What should I do? I say, pay your rent. God does not in any way force us to pay a fee or a penalty that we owe him. Unfortunately, that's how a lot of people look at the tithe. If you don't pay the tithe, God is going to curse you. He's not going to bless you. My friends, that is not biblical teaching. God is not that legalistic or have that kind of a 
of mindset towards our giving. He says here, put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Put it aside. It's like laying away. You know, we like to go to the store, Christmas coming now. Lord, you are going to put away to buy something. Well, you should put away your money to give to meet the needs of Lord's people as well. That's what he's talking about here. Put it aside. It's like a layaway plan to give to others. No percentage or amount is specified. It is to come from what you have earned. Referring to your current income or salary. It's not a percent of your total worth. Now, by the way, a lot of people misunderstand this when it comes to the tithe. The tithing in the Old Testament was to be, was to be figured from your total worth, not just what you made every week. But in other words, if you had a house and property that were worth a million dollars, your tithing is supposed to be on that million dollars. You understand? But that's not how many people look at the tithe. They just, whatever I get, then I give the portion of that. That's not the teaching here at all. It's left up to the individual. It's not a letter for the church or anyone else to tell you what that percentage should be. It's no law or no pressure here as far as God is concerned. It is all voluntary. In Second Corinthians, that has to go along with this. Paul says as, uh, to, be, to give happily, to give, her, the word is hilarious, to give it joyfully. But many people who give a tithe do not give it joyfully. They give it grudgingly, they give it resentment, and they wonder why in the world does God make me give 10%. God is not making you give anything. In fact, when you go over to 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, you'll find that Paul uh, comes back to them now. It took a year for them to really deal with this whole offering. That's why he said, put it aside. It took a year. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 8, this is what it says. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. This is where the concept of grace giving comes in. Not law giving, but grace giving. The different kinds of, kinds of grace taught in scripture. There's saving grace. That's a special kind of grace that is given to us by God. Then there's enabling grace. There's an enabling grace that allows us to use our gifts. There's an enabling grace that moves us to give of the money that we have made in a way that honors God. We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. In other words, they were going through a difficult time themselves here in Macedonia. Going through a difficult time. But yet they gave out of their need. That's where he says a wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability, and in fact beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Notice that? Not because the law said it, but of their own accord. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and support of the saints. In other words... Paul says these poor saints actually came up to him and begged him to be allowed to give towards the needs of the poor saints in Jerusalem. Isn't that something? Paul didn't have to go begging on a big project. They came to him asking that he would. Paul probably looked at them and says, you're all too poor to give anyway. But they said, no way. We want to give. 
anyway, even if it goes beyond us. Like Brother Codright used to say, we give because it hurts, and then we give because it hurts. That's what they were doing. And this, verse 5, not as we had expected, and here's the key to it all, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us. You notice that? They first gave themselves to the Lord unto us by the will of God. Liberality in giving always indicates our relationship to God. When we give ourselves to him totally, it's no problem giving to meet the needs of God's people. Because then we realize that what we have is not ours anyway, it's God's. And he gives it us to enable us to do his will, especially to meet the needs of his people. He goes on, so we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, Paul always reminds them of the fact that they boast in the gifts and everything. So you abound, you boast about your many gifts you have in faith and utterance and knowledge. These are all the gifts that they boasted in. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. This is what he calls gift giving to meet the needs of God's people. What? A gracious work. It's a work based on grace. I am not speaking this as a command. You notice that? He's not speaking this as a legal requirement. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. He says, I am not appealing to the law. I'm appealing to love. If you really love God's people, then you will give out of that love that comes through God. Verse 9. For you know, then he gives us this wonderful illustration here, an example. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul is simply saying, hey, follow the example of your Savior Jesus Christ in giving. He sacrificed all. We should be willing to do the same to help others. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. You see, Second Corinthians was written at least then a year after we read what we're reading in First Corinthians chapter 16. It's a year now that he is saying, finally, the gift is coming to fruition. He says, now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness... In other words, the willingness on your part to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. In other words, Corinthians made a commitment. We would call this today a faith offering, a faith promise gift, as it were. They made a commitment a year earlier. Paul said, now it's time for that to come to fruition. Notice what he says, though. For if the readiness is present, if your heart is really prepared to give, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Do you get that? You see, what a person has, how God has provided, not what God has not provided. That's what he's saying. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction. In other words, you say, 
when these people, are, when you give in a sacrificial way, it's not to hurt you, but it's to relieve others. But you don't only do it to relieve others and get hurt. He says it's a sort of a balance in the Christian life if we follow God's plan in giving. Notice, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. Everything balances out. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need. Why? So that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be a quality within the body. What he's saying is right now they have a need. You okay. You give towards them. Because listen, next time it may be you who have the need and they're the ones who can meet that need. That's how God balances things out. It's in the body of Christ. And if we give according to the spirits leading in our lives to help others, as I say again, the body of Christ will never have a need that's not met by other members of the body of Christ. The gift then was to be set aside from other money and devoted to special use as occasion demanded. Their giving was to be proportionate. It says, as ye may prosper. So that means today or next week if you are given a raise, you should give more to, Lord's, to, Lord, to, to the Lord than you're giving today. You should give in proportion to what God has given you. God gives you more so you can give more to others as well. Therein, he says, the income of some would permit them to give a greater proportion, while others, due to their few resources and other constraints, would be limited to lesser contribution. But what was important was that giving be a unified ministry with each one participating regardless of his income. You see, we have a tendency sometimes as well, that person over there looks like they make more money than I am. Why aren't they giving more? So if they don't give anymore, I'm not going to give either. Paul said, that's sin, really. That's not the way to look at it at all. You give according to the way God has prospered you, not how, they pro- how he has prospered someone else. That's the important thing. The income of some then would permit them to give a greater proportion, while others would not be able to give as much money, but from a percentage point of view, they would be giving as much as they possibly could anyway. Now, notice what he says. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. In other words, he said, don't wait until I get there and we have this big um, fundraising program and we work on the emotions. We pray all, play all kinds of songs. We do all kinds of things just to get people to give. Don't lock the door while the offering has been taken. No one is to leave. I was in a church and that actually happened. <laughs> the pastor say now to the ushers, lock the door. Don't let anyone out because we're taking the offering now. Paul said, no, no, he doesn't want to do that. He says, now when I come, I want you to be all ready to give. The money has to be all prepared, packaged, ready to go. Doing things decently and in order. This is the practical plan then. This is a, you have a theological truth here that results in a practical outcome. When it came time to deliver the contribution to the saints in Jerusalem, there would be no last-minute collections would have to be made, and the gift would be sent off gladly and not grudgingly. Now, see, when we come to giving, it's amazing how we go to the ways of the world and try to pressure people to give. 
try to make them to feel bad to give. Man, you got it. I know you could afford it. You know, I don't want to see no green notes. All I want to see is blue notes. So I don't want to hear no noise when the money is put in the plate. That means no silver. All you want to hear, all you want is paper. And you hear people, I, I mean, it's just amazing how we, dis, we uh, uh, destroy the kind of attitude that God is looking for in our giving. It should be done gladly, deliberately. We should prepare to do it. We should come already prepared to give. Now, he goes on. He says, when I come, I will write letters of recommendation for the messengers you choose to deliver your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me to go along, they can travel with me. This is an amazing passage of scripture. This gives us very valuable insight into the care that should be taken when funds are gathered in the Christian church and how it should be handled. Paul wants it to be done with it in openness, as we say today, with transparency. All right. You handle the money so everybody knows what's happening. You don't handle it when only one person is doing all of it and so on. He says, no, the funds were not to be entrusted to any one person, Paul says. Even Paul himself was not to be the sole recipient. Secondly, he says here, the arrangements as to who would carry the money would not be made arbitrarily by the apostle Paul. It wouldn't be Paul who would choose the people to carry the money. He left that to the church, the congregation to do it. Because Paul did not want to do anything where he would be, there would be an occasion, uh, uh, an occasion for him to be charged with taking the money of the church. So he wanted to be sure it was done properly here. And so Paul says, now when you select these people, and if uh, they should go to Jerusalem and I should go with them, then notice he says, they, I would go with them. In other words, Paul was not taking any kind of a position here where he had control of the money in any way. His hands, he did not write the checks. He did not count the money, deposit the money, and then write the checks on the money he deposited. He didn't do that. This is all left up to the church with a combination of people. If it was decided, Paul is saying, that it would be well for the apostle to go to Jerusalem, then the brethren will accompany him. Notice he says, they will go with me rather than I will go with them. This again shows some idea of his authority maybe uh, as an apostle. In other words, what this passage is telling us here, that Paul practiced uh, transparency in his dealing with the money of the church. In fact, he went overboard in his being so scrupulous in how the money was handled. And when he acted to meet the needs of others, he avoided direct involvement in handling the money. He preferred instead that individuals from the various churches elect representatives to bear the fruit or to bear the gift to the people. And that he might accompany them when they go. Now, when you go over to Second uh, um, Corinthians, you'll find that Paul did, in fact, accompany the people. In fact, it's in the book of Romans. He says, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. 
for Macedonia and Achaia have been released, I'm sorry, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So he did go along with the people who were taking the money. Now, the point here is, Paul is saying that when it comes to handling the church's money, it must be done honestly. It must be done with openness. And especially leaders should in no way, nothing should be there, not even the appearance of being able to uh, to take money from the church. Paul says it's very important that we do this in a transparent way. Now, he mentions also the fact, he, he talks about his own plans or what he's going to be doing in his personal plans. He says, I will come to you after I go to Macedonia, for I am going to Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend a winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. This is a cold way of saying that you will be able to take care of my needs as I travel. Paul was what we will call an itinerant speaker, if you want, a preacher. And it was a congregation who cared for him on the road. And this is what he's talking about here. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. For I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. Notice Paul's plans are always if the Lord permits in the will of God. I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul is saying quite a few things in this passage. First, he's saying, hey, I am looking forward to see you because I know you will join with me in sharing the fellowship of the gospel and taking care of my needs as I go traveling through the country. Secondly, there is a tremendous door open for me for proclaiming the gospel. But there are also many adversaries. And there's a principle here. Whenever there is an opportunity for us to spread the gospel, there are going to be adversaries for us to attack us or be against us in that time. Paul was ready for it. Paul realized that there was a golden opportunity for serving Christ at that time at Ephesus. At the same time, he realized that there were many adversaries. And friends, there are many adversaries in sharing the gospel. There are many adversaries in caring for God's people as well. But still, in the strength of the Lord, we must do it. Then he talks about Timothy. Timothy, of course, was his protege, his son in the faith. He said, now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Now, this is an amazing thing. Paul equates Timothy with himself when it comes to the Lord's work. This shows the humility of Paul and the appreciation Paul had for younger men in the ministry. Paul did not see himself as being above them, but being with them. So, let no one despise him. Remember, that's the same thing he said when he wrote the epistle, let no one despise thy youth. He's saying the same thing now to the Corinthians. Do not depreciate this man because of his age, because of his youthfulness. But send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. So Paul is showing the worth of this young man, Timothy, and also revealing some of the things that Timothy was experiencing problems at the church in Ephesus. The church was not supporting him as he should, as it should. And one of the things is that they were not appreciating his ministry because of his usefulness, it appears. 
It also appears from when you read Timothy that Timothy was on the verge of leaving the ministry. Paul talks about tears and all of that. You have to read that very carefully and don't take it out of context. Timothy seems to have been so, um, what's the word, so disappointed with his ministry there and for lack of growth or whatever it is, that he was ready to leave and he was having emotional problems as well. In fact, he even became sick, it is reported, perhaps a stomach illness, because remember Paul says, take some wine for your stomach's sake. Now, he wasn't just saying that take a drink now and then to lift yourself up. It wasn't meaning that. This was a medication type of a thing. Paul was saying, hey, you have a problem. And scholars believe that there was a problem with water and there was infections. And Paul was simply saying, hey, some wine could help that as a medicine. So we have some things revealed about Timothy in this passage as well. And also Paul's care and appreciation for those in the ministry. In fact, he goes on, he talks about Apollos. Apollos was a man who well versed in the scripture, but remember he didn't know too much about Christ and baptism and all that. And Priscilla and Aquila had to take him aside and teach him. Now Paul is referring to Apollos because Apollos ministered quite a bit in Ephesus. He says, but concerning Apollos our brother, I encourage him greatly to come to you with the brethren. Now remember now, this is the apostle Paul talking. He didn't say I commanded him. He said I encouraged him. But it was not at all his desire to come now. In other words, you know, Paul was, I was pressing him to come. What he's saying is, I don't want to go. Did Paul force him? No. Paul did not take the stance of being a legalistic and to lord it over God's servants. He left it to the individual to determine what God was doing. But he will come when he has opportunity. The context shows that he means when the Lord wills it for him to come. Again, it shows Paul's heart. For, the, for those who are involved in the ministry. Paul saw everyone who's in the ministry as unequal with him. He was not above them. And he encouraged them as much as possible. He did not try to regulate or control them. They were free to determine God's leading in their own life. All right? Uh, then he goes on now to give some specific instructions or admonitions in verses 13 and 14. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you be let all that you do be done in love. This is Paul's final admonition to the Corinthians. Now, as you go to the Corinthians, he had a lot of problems with them. But he's trying to show them now, hey, one of their problems is that they were immature. But he wants him to be mature in the faith. So he's saying, act as mature believers in Christ now. Be alert to false teachings, because false teachings were going on. Be discerning. And that's a command and an admonition that we should heed today. Be alert to false teachings. I say it again, I say it all the time from this pulpit. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful what you read. And remember... The most effective poison is the poison that is mixed with something else that don't make it look like poison. Right? So you get the things that sounds good and then all of a sudden the poison comes in and that's what kills you. That's what's happening. One of the reasons why we are so anxious to get the radio station up and running here is because of the poison that is being taught over the air here 
in the Bahamas right now. There is a station, 24-hour station. I listened to it for three hours the other day. And I almost died because of the error that was in it. I am serious. It was so disturbing. But you see, they have wonderful music. You see? And you, you stay there listening to the music, then the poison comes. And before you know it, you're affected. Be discerning. Stand fast, he says. That means stand fast to your beliefs in the gospel. Don't be swayed by these false teachers. Don't be moved to and fro by the false teachings that you hear. Be mature. He talks about this in Ephesians chapter uh, 4 as well, about not being swayed back and forth by false teachers. Be mature in your behavior as Christians. Be strong in the faith. And notice how he ends up. Let all that you do be done in love. This is amazing how Paul sort of summarizes everything he said in these commands. Because remember, one of the major problems was immaturity when it comes to the gifts. He's saying, be mature. And one of the big problems they had was lack of love. That's why he wrote chapter 13. Now he's saying, uh, let all that you, be do, that you do be done in love. If you do that, you will cure all the problems you have. Paul is summarizing everything he said here. And so he began the conclusion with a point of exhortation here. This conclusion that he has right now. And the main point is we are to be mature in our faith. That means we must know the faith. We must be ready to stand for it. See, that's why one of the things that bothers me quite a bit is how certain people or how individuals could move from one church to another and has nothing to do with doctrine. They wouldn't find out what the other church is teaching. They'd only find out whether or not the music is good, the preacher is short, I don't mean in stature, you know, and stuff like that. They never look at what is being taught. They only look at the environment, not the truth thereof. Paul said that's not a mature thing to do as well, at all. Then he talks about the household of Stephanus. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Archaea, the first people to be saved. And they have devoted themselves to the ministry, to the saints. Notice that, to the saints. Look at the, vo- the, the word devoted, totally committed to the ministry of the saints, caring for the saints. Take it in the context of caring for the Jerusalem saints now. But this family, household means family, was devoted to the ministry to the saints. That's what they were doing on a full-time basis. Verse 16. That you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Paul is saying here that there are certain people who, desi- who deserve our respect. Those leaders who are totally committed to serving the body of Christ. They are, they are um, what is the word I want? They are deserving of our respect and of our subjection, he says here. Paul's usual procedure now, mind you, in church, when he set up churches, was to appoint elders in every church, according to Acts 14.23. But here in this instance, the members of Stephanus' household voluntarily took on that responsibility, and Paul said that's okay. This is why we 
try to encourage many church groups because that's what we have here. We have the idea of a household who is committed to Jesus Christ and to his people who are willing to take on the responsibility of caring for them. Paul endorses that kind of a thing here. And he, he urges others to submit to them. Then he uh, talks about three other individuals, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaeus. Notice what he says. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaeus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. Now, this is not in any way a criticism of the church at Corinth. He's simply saying, he said, these men came and they were present here to help me physically. You helped me spiritually, but you were not present. These men came and they helped me with their presence, their presence as well. He says, they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Again, the principle here is, beloved, we should acknowledge those who are ministering to the body of Christ, who are visiting the sick, those who are willing to drive someone to a drugstore or grocery store because they are not able to do so themselves. We are to acknowledge these people who are doing this kind of work, not just overlook it. So Paul here shows the need for us to acknowledge the ministry of others, not only our own ministry, but all those who are involved in the ministry as a whole. In other words, he's saying, you ministered in spirit and in your absence, but they ministered in person by their presence. And as a result, they were a mutual blessing to me because they were here and to you because they represented you. These men were the, also probably the ones who took the letter that Paul had responded to the Corinthians about, they're probably the ones who carried that letter with them. And he says, be sure that you recognize their ministry to the congregation. And so it's important for us to recognize the ministry of others. Then he concludes, verse 19, he says, the churches of Asia greet you. Now, Paul established many churches. This, he, in fact, here, this could probably be a reference to the seven churches in the in, in, uh in Revelation as well, because that's where these seven churches were. Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, greet you heartily in the Lord. So now we have Aquila and Priscilla now being with Paul in Ephesus. By the way, this tells us that the book of Corinthians was written while Paul was in Ephesus. And Aquila and Priscilla is there. And notice, with the church that is in their house. This is amazing. Paul also fellowship with Priscilla and Aquila when they were in Ephesus. And they had a church there as well in their house. So it seemed that wherever Priscilla and Aquila went, they had the gathering of God's people in their home. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, as I was thinking that maybe we could practice that today. How many of you would like to practice this today? A holy kiss. This means a wholesome kiss. A, a, a kiss that shows your love and care for one another. This is free from any sexual connotations at all. It's just a demonstration of pure love. So Paul is saying here to the people now that he is finally coming to concluding with, with his letter, this is how you are to fellowship one another. Show your love by giving this holy kiss. Now, of course, today we have exchange that for a handshake or a hug. 
that's fine. I don't think God is displeased with that at all. Because the kind of society in which we live now, the holy kiss could be a real problem. Not necessarily for the people in the church, but the people who watch us do it. You know, because you know in the early days, you know what the church was charged with when it came to the Lord's Supper? Committing. What do you call it when you eat somebody else? Cannibalism. They were charged with being cannibals because they got the idea when you're talking about this is my body, this is my blood. Um, and so they were charged with being cannibals. Now just think what would happen if we instituted now and we commanded from here, Pastor Albi and Pastor Arnett, command you all to always kiss one another before you leave. You'll hear on Zedness all over here about the kind of licentiousness that is going on in the church, Calvary Bible Church. So, Paul then finishes up in verse, 30, in verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. I know we pronounce it Maranatha. But it depends on how you split the word. It's two words. Um, if you put the space Maran Ather, it means our Lord has come. If you space this Maranatha, it means our Lord, O Lord come. It's a prayer to come, rather than the fact that he's already here. That's why I have it on the screen, Maranatha is O Lord come. Come quickly is the idea. Now notice, Paul invokes God's wrath on the false teachers who do not love God. He and in context, he's talking about false teachers and those who follow him. Now, so he invokes God's wrath uh, uh, here, but at the same time, he expresses blessing as well. He says, if anyone does not love God, let him be what? A curse. That's a strong word. Is let him be assigned to hell. Literally, it could be read, let him go to hell. In other words, Paul was talking, I think, primarily to those false teachers who were putting poisonous doctrines. And he's saying they do not love God. They're teaching false teachings. They should be assigned to hell. Now, but in the same breath, he makes the prayer, Oh, come, Lord, come. Now, it's important for us to see that Paul is sort of embracing the Corinthians here. On one hand, he is um, he is scolding them for what they're doing. On the other hand, he is praising God for the fact that God is still amongst them. Those who do not love the Lord Jesus are condemned already. But their doom will be manifested the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the idea. A Christian is one who loves the Savior. If you, are a Christ, if you are a Christian, you must love the Savior. You cannot be Christian and not love Christ. Impossible. The, the Christian loves the Lord Jesus more than anyone or anything else in the world. Failure to love God or God's Son is a crime against God the Father himself. Let me read in closing a comment by a commenter, Riley. This is what he says. 
Paul allows no way of escape to the man who does not love Christ. He leaves no loophole or excuse. A man may lack clear head knowledge and yet be saved. He may fail in courage and be overcome by the fear of man like Peter. He may fall and fail tremendously like David, but yet he will rise again. But if a person does not love Christ, he is not in the way of life. The curse of God is yet upon him. He is on the broad road that leads to destruction. So the big question, my friends, to you is, do you really love Jesus Christ? If you do, in the context here, it will be shown by the way you care for God's children. Remember, he said, how can you say you love God if you don't love your brother and sister? How can you love God who you cannot see if you don't love your brothers and sisters who you can? You see, so he gives his benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. He calls upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how he ends. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. My love. Now remember, throughout this entire epistle, Paul has sort of revealed his heartbeat to these individuals. We have seen and listened to him as he sought to edify, to comfort, to exhort, and to admonish his children in the faith. There was no doubt of his love for them. Now, when you read these words, therefore, uh, when they read these words, perhaps they would feel ashamed that they had allowed false teachers to come in and to question the teachings of Paul himself. And they had even questioned Paul's apostleship. And they perhaps had turned away from the original love for Paul. But Paul is saying, I haven't turned away my love from you. I still love you. Because I love my God and I love Jesus Christ. And that's how we show love for one another. It comes from Christ himself. Our love for Christ is demonstrated in our love for one another. That's what Paul teaches here. My prayer is that we might demonstrate that. Remembering this, that the love of God, the love of Christ, is shared abroad in our hearts. How? By the Holy Spirit. And God wants his people to be one. And what, denies, what unites us is love for one another. So I remind you again, as a practical application, next Lord's Day we will be receiving an offering for those in need in our assemblies. I pray that you might allow the Spirit of God to share his love through you as you give. And all of God's people said, Amen.